welcome to another episode of History Pop, where we talk about history, fictional, fictionalized, or otherwise. In this episode, we're going to be continuing on with our medievalisms, or whatever time period it is we're talking about, of Disney. And so I'm really excited to get to talk about uh, a film that's actually solidly in the time period and the areas I study what I'm doing for my dissertation. It's crazy! Uh, so, and I kicked myself uh, when I realized I hadn't even thought of this as an option. So today, we will be talking about Pocahontas 2, Journey to a New World. Now remember, there are no spoilers in history, but there will be in this podcast, so stay tuned. <laughs> talking about the not medievalism but early modernism that is Disney's Pocahontas 2. So a little bit of background on this film. Basically one of the things is Disney after the renaissance of Disney with the advent of uh, was it 1986 uh, with uh, Little Mermaid. Disney entered this film renaissance animated renaissance where they pumped out hit after hit after hit. We have Little Mermaid, we have uh, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, The Lion King. And all of these films were major successes. And Pocahontas, uh, which was actually produced concurrently with uh, The Lion King, was a little bit less of a success uh, than the other films I just previously mentioned, but it actually wasn't necessarily a bad film. It was you know, heavily criticized at the time for its racial overtones, racist overtones, uh, and its digs at historical accuracy, i.e. not accurate. But at the same time, it was still seen to be a fun and decently made movie. The animation was beautiful, the voice acting was fantastic, the songs were wonderful and catchy and memorable. And so Disney wanted to follow up on that success, and they had been recently putting out these direct-to-video sequels of their major motion picture hits. And Pocahontas 2, Journey of a New World, followed on the heels of Pocahontas 1. So Pocahontas 1 uh, was released in 1995. Pocahontas 2, 1998. So three years, which you can definitely tell in the fact that they reused a ton of animation. But that's going to come later. So basically the gist of Pocahontas 2 is we time slide several years uh, into the future. So... The events of Pocahontas 1 have happened, and now we have the building up of the Jamestown settlement. So we know that this is definitely, uh, it says three years in the Wikipedia. I'm not sure if three years actually makes sense, because uh, the settlers coming in for Jamestown originally in, like, the 16, late 16 aughts. So... We have, uh, like, the Bad Winter of 1611. We have them kind of coming 1608-ish. And so we have this movie very solidly, at least historically, taking place in 1616. So we have a gap there. <laughs> but anyway, so uh, John Rolfe is sent to the colony uh, in Jamestown to bring back a representative most likely he's wanting the chief Powhatan to come and and treat with his king king james because uh ratcliffe the villain from the first movie has quote unquote killed john smith but no one knows this except for him and john smith who is actually ah, not dead and ratcliffe has convinced james that war is absolutely necessary to uh, teach the savages, because there's a lot of use of the word savage in this film, but to teach the Native Americans, indigenous peoples, uh, a lesson, and also to, you know, get back at them retribution for hiding all the gold. And so James uh, is convinced by Ratcliffe and sends an English armada, or at least is in the prep work of sending an English armada, to Virginia to 
slaughter the Native Americans and steal their gold. And John Rolfe is sent uh, as a last-ditch effort to try to stop this from happening. He goes to the New World, quote-unquote New World, and uh, brings back Pocahontas to talk with James, to convince James that war is not necessary, and to set up a peace between these two peoples. And Pocahontas gladly comes and... She uh, is introduced to London society, uh, which does not go well. And she is somehow thrown into the tower, which at this time, yeah, we, we see this as both a royal residence and as a jail. And then she is busted out with the help of her Johns, John Smith, who, <gasps> not dead, and John Rolfe. And... Then she meets with James again, and she convinces James that there is no gold and that her people, if they want to fight, will fight if James wants to bring the fight to them, that her people will fight to the last warrior. There's actually something really reminiscent of World War II in that, actually. That was one of the fears of uh, the Americans invading Japan is that they felt that the Japanese would fight not just to the last warrior, but to the last person, and that the Japanese people had been all trained to be able to fight uh, against the American soldiers. And so there's kind of a little bit of reminiscent of that of the Americans and the Japanese during World War II with the English and the Native Americans here. Maybe that's just me. I don't know. But anyway, so she manages to convince the James, the James, the James, that he should not invade her people's land and that, you know, they aren't, they don't have gold. They're not hiding anything and they want to be friends. Yay. And so then Pocahontas and John Smith and John Rolfe all make their way down to the docks and stop the armada. And I'm like, the docks in London would not be that big to house that entire flipping armada. But anyway, it's okay. So she stops the armada. Well, she doesn't. But she is rescued from Ratcliffe by John Smith and John Rolfe, who then stopped the armada by crashing all the boats together. And then everybody's happy. Pocahontas... Uh, is going back to her family and John Rolfe comes with her and supposedly they live happily ever after. The end. No war. Huzzah. So that's the general plot of Pocahontas 2. And so in the first movie, there were nods to historical accuracy. Like they actually, the producers and the screenwriters uh, had actually consulted with uh different members of Virginian Native American tribes to try to portray their way of life uh, in an accurate, as much as you can, way to do justice and be respectful of cultural traditions and languages and to represent them in a very positive way, which the first movie, honestly, especially for being a mid-90s artifact, does a really good job of. As much as it's not as culturally sensitive as many would like it to be today, for its time, it was incredibly progressive. In the mainstream. <laughs> There's lots of things that are wrong with the 90s, and that's one of them, but it's a step. And this movie takes that step. Now, actually, one of the things they do a pretty good job of is honestly the portrayal of the Native Americans and not belittling them or making them the butt of any of the jokes, to be honest. Uh, honestly, it's all the white people <laughs> who are being made fun of and made to look bad in this movie, which also not historically accurate as well, depending on who we're talking about. Um, but the biggest issue that I have in terms of historical accuracy with this or in how this movie is teaching the history is, you know, because I am a Royal Studies scholar and I have spent a lot of time with James. I've spent a lot of time with his wife, Anna. This representation of James is so far off the mark that it's 
laughable. Like, I can't, I couldn't watch this without trying to turn it into a drinking game, which I did. And it was disastrous for myself that particular night. <laughs> because one of the main tenets of King James, now James, uh, just to let you know, give you a little bit of background on him, had been king since he was about six months old, not of England, but of Scotland. He, uh, his mother, Mary, Queen of Scots, had been forced to abdicate her throne uh, due to many, many issues. Um, but she was forced out of her throne and of Scotland itself, and she fled to her kinswoman, Elizabeth I of England, who kept her imprisoned under house arrest for basically 20 years, and then had her beheaded in 1587. So yeah, that, that was um, that was not good. But so James uh, became king when his mother abdicated her throne, and he was about six months old at the time. Now she was six days old, so Scotland had had a lot of issues with having infant rulers for a while. It was just kind of a thing that the Stuarts did. <laughs> Yeah, you definitely don't want to be a king named James in Scotland. James VI, the one that we're talking about here, was honestly like the only one to actually survive until his natural death. Um, but so James had become king in Scotland around six months of age. He never really got to meet or know his mother. Uh, he was raised in the household of uh, nobles, uh, notably the Earl and the Countess of Mar, uh, that had raised him and took care of him. He... Uh, grew up uh, and intellectually precocious. He was an extremely book smart man and he sought wisdom, but above all, James sought peace. James built himself up as this great European peacemaker. And that was one of the things that he was known for and actually kind of excited for with the fact that uh, once he had multiple children, he set about uh, working to have them married into various houses throughout Europe, which is a normal thing. Uh, but he actually sought to marry his son into his eldest son into a Catholic country's royalty family. That's how it's talked about, Courtney. And his daughter to a Protestant royal family so that way he could actually achieve balance in the force between Catholics and Protestants. And so the fact that Ratcliffe is able to convince James that, well, those Native Americans are, you know, hiding your gold and we need to, you know, go to war to be able to get it from them is so laughably out of character. There's no way that James would have won, sent an armada or a fleet or anything to the New World to take it over that way that's not how he rolled and he wanted peace above all else now of course he would have loved it if they paid homage to him but it still was he would not have actually sent a force to invade so that is so completely out of character for him um, also interesting in this film is that they couldn't get Mel Gibson to come back. I don't know what else he was working on at the time, but they got his little brother to actually play the role of John Smith, and he does a really great job of continuing the role. Like, he's almost indistinguishable from Mel Gibson's portrayal. So, well done, Donald Gibson. Um, but yeah, so I'm just kind of going through my notes here. Yes, yeah, so we have the opening scenes, uh, James and Anna... Ratcliffe convincing him that war is the only way. Anna, not so convinced. And that's actually another interesting portrayal as well. Now, we don't normally hear anything about James's queen, Anna of Denmark, uh, in pop culture works, which I don't understand why, because she's such a fascinating woman. But uh, I love how we have her, even though she doesn't have a lot of dialogue, she shares each of the scenes that James is in, and she has this skeptical nature to her. She is able to intuit uh, people's, uh, basically in D&D, she rolls natural 20s on her insight checks. She's able to figure out pretty easily what people's motivations actually are and who is actually telling the truth. And she knows how to smooth things over really well, whereas they portray James as this oaf 
basically. Um, but this Ofu is also really stuck up on manners and decorum, which I'm like, that's not James. <laughs> um, but anyway, so we have uh, the Native Americans. Uh, we see them. John Rolfe is on his way. It's winter time, and Pocahontas is out sledding. And honestly, we see this once again, like I've kind of talked about before in the other medievalisms of Disney, this idealized connection with nature and how this is you know, an idealized version of the past where people are in tune with nature. And of course, we're going to see a lot of that with uh, portrayals of Native Americans, because that's also something that um, is kind of a, a trope or a staple of portrayals of Native Americans connections to nature in pop culture or just in culture in general and so honestly in my opinion that's the only reason that pocahontas ain't dead at the very beginning of the movie because physics would have her die <laughs> um but we have john rolf coming in um i really actually enjoyed seeing how uh this movie showed us more of the day-to-day -day life of the native american tribes again and how we also see these interactions between Jamestown and which has been built up over the last several years into a town. And I'm really surprised they have so many women there. That really wasn't a thing yet. They were working on it, but you know, you say that you want to have the best of society women, or at least, you know, like virtuous and chaste women, but virtuous and chaste women are not gonna sail across an ocean for an uncertain future. So, yeah, you're not going to have this many women, and they're not going to be as well-dressed. They're not going to be as uh, highbrow as they are portrayed in this particular scene. Um, but, so we do get to see these interactions, which honestly would not have been as intense as we got there. And Pocahontas actually was used as a mediator uh, between these two groups, because she'd been held ransom for a year. <laughs> by the people in Jamestown, which is one of the ways that she learned better English uh, to be able to communicate with them, with her captors. And also that's when, historically, she was converted to Christianity. Now, I say was converted in the passive sense because we don't know. She was probably brainwashed. I don't know. Um, there are actually some uh, oral traditions that, show, that talk about how she was raped and how she was brainwashed into adopting the cultural ways of the English settlers. But we don't have any documentation to support any of that. But then also at the same time, the English, while they really weren't the best of people, especially in their dealings with the Native American tribes, would not have documented the fact that they raped her. So it's kind of a catch-22. They wouldn't have documented it, but we don't have the documentation to be able to, to successfully prove it. So we're just going to move on from there. But anyway, so it was a complicated relationship uh, historically with Pocahontas and her relations with Jamestown. And so we have her actually then acting as a mediator from that point on. She met and married uh, John Rolfe, who was a planter, not a nobleman, a planter. Uh, and he actually managed, he was a decent businessman and he built up uh, a fairly large uh, tobacco plantation and made decent money off of it, married Pocahontas, took her back to England, uh, 1616, so we actually do have a definitive date for this, um, where she was greeted as a foreign princess. And uh, yeah, so actually one of the things, one of the things I actually did enjoy uh, another thing I enjoyed about this film was the uh, Welcome to London song. It was actually really kind of cute. Uh, of course, nothing about it. Well, a couple of things about it were accurate, but for the most part, if you're looking at any of the people in the background of the scenes, it is such a mishmash of styles and time periods that doesn't make sense. Now, London, of course, is a melting pot at this particular point. It is a growing European capital, but they wouldn't have had women walking around in fashions that were the height of fashion in like 1200 because that's 400 years earlier um 
And they wouldn't have, and even if they did have one or two, they wouldn't have had so many of them, just in slightly different color palettes. So you can definitely see the lack of effort or funding in terms of the animation when it comes to these scenes. But the song itself is actually kind of cute. It's the only song that's decently memorable for me. Um, but yeah, so we have a mishmash of the fashions. Uh, also Shakespeare is showing up, which is kind of confusing because if you look at it historically, one moment I need a Tower of London tea break. Thank you, Harney and Sons. once again not sponsored um but yeah shakespeare is coming in and he is uh, apparently has his inspiration for hamlet's famous monologue to be or not to be that is the question whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune or to take arms against a sea of troubles and by opposing end them so we have Shakespeare pop up with a skull, a la, you know, poor Yorick, I knew him well. Um, and then writing down uh, with his quill and parchment, the to be or not to be. Now, now Hamlet was a lot earlier than this. Um, at least decently earlier than 1616. Hamlet uh, was possibly done for Anna of Denmark as a Danish play as a way for Shakespeare to you know ingratiate himself to her even though he already had but it was a way to keep your queen happy because she gives you money <laughs> or at least the, actually he was part of the Kingsman's uh, uh, company and uh, but you know to keep the royal family happy to compliment them by making plays that show that you understand things about them that you uh, you know deal with your sovereigns in a respectful manner that's one of the reasons why we have Macbeth uh, Macbeth being the Scottish play as a way to show James hey I know Scottish history and you're going to be my new king so I want to show you that I care about your history cool um, and so Den uh, Hamlet was that way as well to showcase Denmark and Anna's Danish heritage um, now, Hamlet was first performed in 1609, most likely written uh, around 1600, once it became apparent that uh, Anna of Denmark and James VI slash first of Scotland and England would become the King and Queen of England, uh, which happened just a little bit later in 1603. And... So this is also completely and utterly historically inaccurate in terms of the time period. But then also, Shakespeare died in 1616, earlier than Pocahontas' arrival. So he dead. He way dead. Um, so I thought that that was also interesting. And then we also have uh, Pocahontas singing about the, the river in London, which of course can only mean the Thames. And it's this beautiful, blue, flowing, wide river. And I'm like... No, <laughs> the Thames is full of literal feces and trash. People just throw their waste into the river. It is a rotting cesspool of crap. <laughs> yeah, it's it's not it's not pretty. Um, uh, one of the things that actually is really cool in this scene, though, is we do see the puppet theater. There's a little Punch and Judy puppets, and you can't see me, but I'm doing puppets with my hands. <laughs> <laughs> tea break um and so that would actually totally have been a thing in the london markets we actually would have had uh puppet theater it was a thing so you actually have uh in terms of the london theater scene there are a few different types of theater that people would have been able to engage with on a daily basis we have depending on the weather the open air uh outdoor theaters uh, so if you do go to London and you go to the Globe, which is um, an outdoor theater, it would have been similar to what you would have experienced back in Shakespeare's day. They did their best, actually, to kind of make bottle it on. I think it was on the second version of the Globe. This is the third version of the Globe. The Globe had uh, been taken apart, moved around, burned down, etc., etc. So there's a lot of history with the Globe. But um, so there would have been outdoor theaters like the Globe. 
which is actually semi-close to where it would have been historically as well. But then you also have indoor theaters like uh, Blackfriars, which um, would have been then. And actually later on, we have royalty coming to the theater. Uh, Henrietta Maria, who was queen uh, starting in 1625, loved to go to the theater and so she actually would have had theater brought to her usually which is what normally happened with royalty but she was unusual in the fact that she actually went to the theater we have documentation of her going to blackfriars to catch in a show which is really kind of cool um so we have those sorts of theater and people would actually go to especially the open air theaters it was a lot cheaper than going into the indoor theaters but uh, people would go daily uh, usually shows uh, would have only been repeated a few times, maybe a couple of days, and then they have another show that comes on. Uh, they do recycle oldies but goodies, um, depending on audience choices, to be honest. They kind of do not necessarily formal surveys, but things that were popular, they'll bring back. Not always, but you're going to have a constant stream of new plays coming in that you can actually go and watch. And usually people would go to their particular neighborhood theater. Um, we actually do have uh, rivalries between different theater companies and different theaters. And so we have like uh, Queen Anna's men were usually at the Red Bull, but um, they had gotten more funding and were going to, and built a new theater in a different part of London. And so the company was going to move and people rioted in the streets to try to stop them and uh, tried to burn down their new theater. <laughs> so people were hardcore theater goers in the early 17th century London and so but we also have puppets puppets are totes a thing and I absolutely love it and I really want to find more plays uh, that were written for puppet theater uh, we do have several scenes that are memorable of puppet theater in other shows uh, especially like Ben Johnson's Bartholomew Fair where we do have puppets making fun of the Puritans which is hilarious and amazing um, so that was one thing that was actually a nice historical touch because it does actually show that that was really a thing and the hustle and bustle of London, uh, it does a good job of portraying that. So while the people's fashions may not have been anywhere at all accurate, the, the activity, the feeling that you get when you're in London, or at least that you would have gotten at that particular point in time, is actually pretty accurate. Um... And actually, that was also something, too, one of the things that I was uh, talking with my friend Rye about. Uh, he, You may remember him from our six discussion. Uh, he watched most of this movie with me and uh, asked me some really fun questions. Uh, but he was actually asking specifically about the Union Jack, uh, which does pop up every now and then on the boats or hang, uh, hanging, flying in London. And the Union Jack would not necessarily have been used as the English flag at this particular point in time. Uh, it hadn't quite completely been adopted yet, but it had been uh, visualized. It had been created. Uh, James himself, actually, when he became, when he realized he was going to be King of England, as well as King of Scotland, sketched out designs. And one of those is actually the Union Jack, which is really kind of cool. So it did exist as a concept, um, but it wouldn't have necessarily been as widespread as we see it in the film. Um, but so then we go to John Rolfe's house, which is gigantic for the time period. And they try to show that he is this nobleman. He is a contrast to James Smith because James Smith is more brute force. And uh, John Rolfe is manners and decorum. So yeah, he has a friggin' huge house, um, and the Jenkinses are his uh, servants. They take care of the house while he's gone, which is apparently a lot of the time. And uh, she's constantly Mrs. Jenkins, is basically a discount Mrs. Potts uh, from Beauty and the Beast. And she's going on and on and on and on about tea. Every other thing she's talking about tea. And I'm like, no, this is another one of the things that, at least for me, breaks the immersion, which I've talked about in other um, episodes, especially looking at the Sleeping Beauty episode where we're talking about uh, the fairies making their cake using a teaspoon because tea was not a thing in England yet. I don't know 
how often or how many times or what I need to do to make people understand this. Tea was not a thing yet. Now, of course, there had been trade uh, with Portugal, uh, bringing things back from China and India where tea is grown. Um, but it was not widespread. It was not a thing that would have just randomly been in some random lower and lesser nobility's house. Um, they weren't even really drinking it at the royal court. Now, chocolate was a thing that was coming back actually from the new world. Um, and hot chocolate was very different than how we think about it today. It was basically just melt melted bitter chocolate. Um, but tea, not a thing in England yet. <laughs> that comes later. We have more and more trade uh, routes coming in during the Commonwealth, but popularly tea is brought over to England by Catherine of Braganza, who is queen to Charles II. She marries him in 1662. And she's from Braganza, which is in Portugal. And she brings all of these Portuguese trade connections, which then opens up so much in terms of um, mercantilism and trade with, the, with India and with China. Uh, and Southeast Asia in general, because the Portuguese had had well-established trade networks there for a couple centuries. Um, but anyway, so we move on, and James is once again manipulated easily into inviting Pocahontas to a hunt ball. I have no idea what the hell that's supposed to be. As a royal studies person, I have no idea what a hunt ball is. Because one, they didn't really do balls at this particular point in time. Um, you have masks, which I think is probably what they were trying to go for with this, but the mask itself is not necessarily a form of performance that is popularly known, uh, outside of what I study. Um, but basically a mask is a combination of a masquerade ball, which comes at the end, and a, uh, play a musical, all rolled into one. Uh, we have uh, the mask really taking off as an art form, as a theatrical form, with the Stuarts uh, coming over to England in 1603. Anna of Denmark was really an innovator uh, in terms of how she, because she actually performed in them herself, which was not done uh, before that. Uh, there are historical documentations talking about masks being performed at the English courts going all the way back into the 1400s. Uh, but the, the royalty themselves never performed in them. It was always performed for them. Every now and then, like, uh, we see Elizabeth I actually being brought into the dancing at the end of several masks but we don't have her actually performing in them whereas Anna of Denmark once she came down from Scotland and there was enough funding to be able to do this because Scotland is a bit of a poorer nation than England she took to it like a duck to water she produced these masks she uh, contracted these men to create the scenery and the costumes and to write the uh, lyrics and the script for the shows that she wanted to produce and she performed in them now she didn't act technically she danced and other people would do paid actors would do perform lines uh, describing the scene of what's going on but she still danced in them which is a really big deal because uh, England is this really weird place for theater, you know, everywhere else, uh, for the most part, actually, as far as I understand it, except for Japan, actually, uh, where we actually have a really established theater tradition, looking at Spain, looking at France, looking at Italy. We have women on the stage. We have women performing, acting just like the men do. England is wonky in that cultural traditions, it's not illegal, but cultural tradition holds that women do not act on stage it's indecent and so men play women's roles which is a, a trope of shakespearean theater but that changes once we get actually into uh 1660 with the restoration of charles ii to the throne so anna even just performing a dance not even using her voice and singing or acting was a huge thing 
and it was scandalous actually but then uh it became a thing and people were totally fine with it because you don't want to piss off the new queen so we have a mask which is historically what Pocahontas actually did get to come and see. She would have been treated to other people's dancing and singing and then perhaps even brought in at the very end to dance as the guest of honor with one of the lead uh, characters of the show. And then it devolves into a masquerade ball and then we have a meal and life is good. And usually these performances are never repeated. They are ephemeral shows you get a one time only shot to see this particular mask and they would have been so expensive the costuming special effects they would have had actually really decent special effects the the use of gunpowder the use of sound effects lighting uh intricately uh creative stage work so we have a whole lot of innovation that's going on with the masking as a form, pushing theater as well. And so Pocahontas, hi kitty. Uh, Pocahontas was historically invited to a mask. Um, I need to do a little bit more research to figure out exactly which one would have been performed in 1616, 1617 when she was there. Um, but she was there during the Twelfth Night season, which is when a lot of masks were performed at the royal court. So super interesting stuff. But we have in the movie this hunt ball. And so I think it's a bastardized version of a mask where we see um, Pocahontas dancing. And I don't know enough about dance history to say whether or not that is an accurate dance, but it looks like fairly accurate except to me it looks like it's from a dance from a slightly later time it honestly calls to mind like those Jane Austen sort of things rather than 17th century so but I don't know I would have to do a little bit more research to figure that out and it's actually it's hard for me to say you know specifically because this is in my time period and this is what I studied that but that is not a particular dance that I know um but we do have a lot of footwork um, which works really well in terms of what I know about the dance because uh, it would have been a lot of fancy footwork. Um, but yeah, so James invites her to the hunt ball. Also, when we have the scene of dressing Pocahontas, that is not what underwear would have looked like. Um, she would not have had bloomers or an undershirt like that. Honestly, you just had the skirts, lots of skirts. And if you needed to do your business, you just lift them up. There's nothing underneath. You just go. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, no, totally not what underwear would have been like. Uh, we do see her getting cinched into a corset, uh, which may, they make it look very painful and very awkward, which is also not. Now, she would not have had a body trained for corsets, which makes sense because they wouldn't have worn them in the new world, quote unquote. Oh, hello. I'm getting messages. Yay! Um, but but we do have a corset, and that actually would have been a type of garment that would have been worn, um, but not in the way that they portray it. Uh, but it would have been most likely uncomfortable and constricting for her because she wasn't used to it. Women in England of almost all sorts of uh, social strata would have worn something like a corset. Um, it would have been just a standard piece of your clothing. And so you, it wouldn't have been as uncomfortable because they're not going to cinch it that tight that you can't breathe because then you can't do anything. You can't do your work. You can't meet with people. You can't clean. You can't cook. You can't do your life if you can't breathe. So the fact that they're um, using that trope of a corset being something that is so entirely constricting doesn't make any sense. Now with Pocahontas it does because she would never have worn one before and it would have been exceedingly difficult for her to get used to, but she would have done it and I'm sure she did. Um, but yeah, so we have the corset deal going on there. Oh my gosh, this was also where I also had issues, is in John Rolfe's house where we see Pocahontas getting ready, we all see lots of different paintings and portraits on the walls. And it's like they googled old tiny portraits and then just copied them. They are from so many different time periods, which could make sense, except they're from time periods that would have been in the future of the movie 
We see Napoleonic styles. We see Restoration styles. We see French Revolutionary, or sorry, Pre-Revolution styles. We see all of these, and not that many, actually, that would have been historically accurate to put into the halls. And it's just like, seriously? Did you just Google old-timey portraits? I think that's what you did. And then I have a, a nitpicky thing, <laughs> as if none of this other stuff has been nitpicky. None of it. No, this is the nitpicky. <laughs> when Pocahontas and John Rolfe are being announced uh, at the Hunt Ball, whatever the hell that is still, we hear the crier announce a bunch of other names. And honestly, it just seems like they once again went, what is going to sound the most Englishy? Well, we know that this, Lord Raymond and Lady Teresa, who the hell are these people? No one knows. Um, we have the Duke of Edinburgh, which is how they say it instead of Edinburgh, uh, which there was no such thing at the time as a Duke of Edinburgh. The Duke of Edinburgh was created as a title in 1726. And I think they just were like, what's an Englishy thing? Oh, Prince Philip, he's the Duke of Edinburgh. Uh, so I'm sure that that title has existed for forever. It has not. Um, the Earl of Essex actually was. That was a real person at the time. And he probably would have been at a courtly function. So that works. Um, we have the Duke of Buckingham. Also not a thing at this particular point in time. Uh, the title had been created uh, much earlier, and there were several different iterations of it, but the last person to hold the title had been executed uh, back in the mid-1500s. Uh, the title wasn't recreated until the 1620s, I think it was 1623, when we actually have the next Duke of Buckingham. And so there's no Duke of Buckingham or Lady of Buckingham, which would have been Countess of Buckingham, Um at the time. So what the hell? <laughs> so that's my nitpick of this movie. Um, and honestly, it just goes to show the carelessness that these people used when they were putting together this film. Because they automatically assume that people are going to treat this as a fancy flight of fancy, that this isn't going to be used to understand history at all. But that's not how this works. Even if they're not intending to teach history and historical concepts through these films by setting them in historical uh, time periods and by incorporating some real historical events, it lends itself to having at least a bit of authenticity. And it's completely wrong. <laughs> and so there is some responsibility to at least make it seem that the parts that are not historically accurate need to be more obvious to an audience that these are just pretend. So like when we have in the first movie, Grandmother Willow actually talking to Pocahontas. So while Pocahontas may have been high and actually thinking that she was talking to a tree, um, to audiences today, that seems too far-fetched. Uh, but having Pocahontas go to a hunt ball could be conceivably for someone who doesn't have this historical background make a lot of sense this portrayal of james could make a lot of sense if you don't know that much about england or about james at this particular time period and so i think that if they're that they have that the filmmakers have this responsibility to if you're not going to make things historically accurate then make sure that your audience understands that somehow there are ways to do it but that's part of your job to show that even if you're using this particular setting and these things are going to be historically accurate, major things are not. Um, let's see here. So then, um, yeah, we have James kind of lecturing on manners and decorum, which also, totes not a thing. So James is, is a Scot. He's from Scotland. And up in Scotland, you do things very differently. Uh, his manners were actually seen as quite boorish. Uh, down in England when he moved. He wasn't really... I mean, you could actually just go in and kind of talk to him. He didn't really care. Uh, James was... As much as he had a very high sense of himself as king, and he had, you know, this God-given right to rule, this divine right to rule, 
he still wasn't as insistent on the manners and the decorum and as highbrow as his son Charles would be. And so um, James, you know, talking about how Pocahontas has her lack of manners and that she is acting like a barbarian doesn't make any sense at all. That's, once again, completely out of James's character. And the whole bear baiting scene in the palace, at Whitehall Palace, also, that's also really not what the, what Whitehall would have looked like. Now, that's a question that I had to ask myself throughout this whole movie, is have these animators actually ever been to London? Have these animators been to Whitehall or the Tower to be able to actually see what these places look like now to get the inspiration for what they looked like then? Um, but anyway, so we have the bear baiting scene, which bear baiting was totally a form of entertainment at this particular point in time. Down the street from the globe, you have a bear baiting ring. But it is not the entertainment that would have been at a function of the royal court. Masking, yes, absolutely. Bear baiting, not so much. That is seen as a lower class's form of entertainment uh, because it is bloody, it is vicious. You are poking a bear, seeing what happens, making it angry, and then eventually probably killing it. And so that was, it was a form of entertainment, but it was not a form of entertainment that would have been at the royal court at Whitehall. And that, I mean, using that to beat us over the head with the fact that Pocahontas uh, is a Native American and that she has these connections to nature and that she also is the lone voice of conscience uh, in this court and that she is punished for it. And I have no, ugh, there's no way that James would have ever thrown her in the tower. She is a visiting foreign dignitary. No, that, that, no, just diplomacy, no. Even if he had issues with her and she had been, done something completely offensive, there's no way he could have or would have thrown her in the tower. And they talk about how she committed treason. And that just goes to show that they have a misunderstanding of what treason actually means. She could not have committed treason because James is not her king. It would have been an act of aggression between two, because she actually is representative of the Powhatan Confederacy. But she is not, it can't be treason because James is not her king. Uh, yeah, so she's thrown in the tower. Yeah. Um, and just that, that whole scene just completely threw me there. Like, I have, the fork is this magic shot <laughs> to borrow some words from uh, The Good Place. Once again, join me for a tea break. Enjoy. Ah, tea break. Which, once again, they did not have tea at this particular point in time anymore very good um and actually yeah Anna of Denmark loved dancing which makes me sad that they didn't actually show her doing any dancing which makes me sad but yeah so we have the bear baiting um and I love how we have these little looks from Anna and I call her Anna because that's what she called herself she never called herself Anne everyone else called her Anne but she did not any signature you find of hers it's Anna um but yeah so Anna she she knows she knows Radcliffe is lying to James and you can just see it in the animation. And that's one thing that I actually did enjoy is how they do have Anna being this really great judge of character and how she worked with James really well. Now, James would not have been as much of an idiot as he's portrayed as. He was a very smart man uh, who was a fan of justice and a fan of peace. Unlike the James in this movie, which is voiced by the same guy who does Winnie the Pooh and also Powhatan and the singing voice of uh, Scar in The Lion King after Jeremy Irons' vocals blew out. So you can actually hear a slightly different tone once you get to the end of Be Prepared. But anyway, Disney lore. Um, but yeah, so there's no way James could have ever put Pocahontas in the tower. Um, then we have, of course, John Smith and John Rolfe rescue her together from the tower. And that's another thing, too, that just doesn't make sense in terms of not the historical 
accuracy of it, but the continuity from the first film. Pocahontas, as much as she falls in love with John Smith, she's... This reminds me of a... Uh, one of my very favorite quotes from Revolutionary Girl Utna, which is an anime from the late 90s. And in it, we have a girl who wants to become a prince. And so she says, I would rather be a prince who rescues princesses than a princess waiting to be rescued. And in the first film, Pocahontas is the prince who rescues princesses. She is the one who rescues John Smith. And that was a huge departure for Disney that they did not have the main character, the main princess, as a damsel in distress. But in this film, she goes about 20 steps backwards and is a damsel in distress several times. And she is rescued by both James, James, John Smith and John Rolfe. And then once they do rescue her from the tower, we have them arguing over what it is she is going to do. Is she going to uh, go back to her people and run away? Or is she going to go to James and fight? And she... And it is really frustrating that these men are trying to decide for her. But then she goes off, takes a minute, comes back, and has made her own decision. Uh, she's going to go and talk to James as herself, not dressed up as uh, an English courtier lady. Um, and of course, Anna then is able to understand exactly what Pocahontas is getting at and helps out in the situation. And everything is fixed. Uh, James sends Rolf, Smith, and Pocahontas down to the docks, which I mentioned earlier, to stop the Armada from sailing to the New World with Ratcliffe at the helm to invade and take all of the gold. And once again, it's not Pocahontas who actually gets to do the saving and the stopping. It's Rolf and Smith. And that, in terms of characterization for Pocahontas, is really sad because she was such a very strong into character, independent character with a sense of self that... We really, I mean, we see with Jasmine in Aladdin as well, but definitely not with Aurora and Sleeping Beauty. But we have this incredibly strong character in Pocahontas. And she becomes this much weaker character who other people need to rescue, who is not as confident in and of herself. We have bits of the original Pocahontas that do shine through, but she is much less confident in this film which is really sad but she decides that she's going to go home and uh is sad that john rolf doesn't want to come with her but then <gasps> he surprises her on the boat yay the end and they go back to virginia where she um actually she never made it back home historically uh pocahontas did go to england and then was going to come back to virginia but she died before she left england um we don't know where her grave is at, actually, apparently. Um, and she did actually have a son. So there are many people who claim uh, her as one of their ancestors. And uh, yeah, she had a son with John Rolfe named Thomas Rolfe. And that's it. That's the end of this movie. So the things that we get from this film in terms of all of the historical inaccuracies which you're probably like wow she really nitpicked through all of those and i i definitely did nitpick some of this stuff but some of the stuff is just if you have been able to take the time to read anything about this particular time period uh then it's just glaring problems that don't teach not I don't, and that's the whole thing with this podcast, this whole thing that I'm working on. I'm not trying to necessarily correct the history. That's part of what I'm doing. But the thing is, I want to think about how these works of popular culture teach history, even if they're not necessarily intending to. And to do that, you need to be able to know what the established historical record, as we understand it, 
demonstrates. And so this film has a lot of issues with that established historical record. And it doesn't do a good job of showing you that this is just fanciful stuff, that this is not actual history. The liberties that it takes are great. And I don't mean great as in like, that's wonderful, great as in big. And I find it extremely problematic, which is one of the reasons why I'm really glad that it's not that popular of a movie. Um, that not a lot of people actually know about this. And honestly, if you haven't watched it, don't. It is not a great movie by any stretch of the imagination. If you liked Pocahontas 1, you won't like Pocahontas 2. Um, I just, I, I uh, had a fun time looking over some of the Amazon reviews and basically the only people who actually really like this movie are toddlers because it does have a lot of that slapstick humor that you get, uh, in, oh, not Gargoyles, which was a really great show in Hunchback of Notre Dame, which I haven't seen all the way through because I can't stomach the Gargoyles. It's just, it's just horrible. Um, but you have a lot of that type of humor that you get with um, Miko and the dog, whatever the hell his name is, I don't know, uh, and Flit. So with the animal companions, you have a lot of that slapstick humor that just doesn't jive with the tone of the film. Um, so we have a lot of that going on. So it makes sense that toddlers would be the ones who really enjoy this film. And I'm glad that they do. And I hope that it might inspire them when they grow up to learn more about the real Pocahontas, uh, who, um, whose real name was actually Matuaka, and who, after she converted to Christianity, became known as Rebecca Rolfe. And to learn more about the relationships that were both stren strained, strenuous, and good between the Powhatan tribes and Jamestown to learn about the atrocities that the English settlers committed in their search for gold. And once it became evident that there was no gold uh, in Jamestown, one of the things that the English actually, and I, I remember talking about this with Ryan about this too when we were watching the movie, was that, yeah, gold was totes a thing that they were looking for because everyone was jealous that the Spanish had found all of this silver and gold in Central and South America. And the Spanish were super wealthy because of it at this particular point in time. But, and I, well, it's declining. The amount of gold and silver that they're finding is declining but they're still uber powerful and the english want to get in on that which is why they send uh um a colony actually an effort to colonize uh roanoke in 1585 which is much earlier than jamestown but that are utterly, uh, utterly <laughs> it does utterly it does utterly fail um it of eventually does fail and they become the lost colony and then they try again with Jamestown but Jamestown was meant to be this settlement it wasn't meant to go and find the gold and bring it back it was meant to settle the new world to the biggest goal aside from money which of course is a thing uh, was to convert the Native Americans uh, it was done to take the land for England and to convert souls for their understanding of religion, for the Protestant Reformed faith, uh, because the Spanish had been converting people to Catholicism, and the English were like, no, we need to get in on this action and save these people for reals, so we need to get them to convert to Protestantism, the right religion. And so that was a major part of it as well, that they had these proselytizing efforts. And that's one of the reasons why Pocahontas was important, because she was um, a daughter of one of the chiefs. And she, as far as the historical record, which is problematic, uh, states she was willingly converted to Christianity. Now, once again, we don't know for sure because they're not going to say, oh yeah, we totes brainwashed her or we raped her and we made her believe this sort of stuff. They're not going to write that. Um, but she did convert 
she was baptized she took a new name she went to england so her story in terms of the english settlement in the north american area is incredibly important and she is this bridge between these two peoples and so i hope that thinking about this history thinking about this movie gets people to ask questions about the established historical narrative and what it is that they do think that they are learning from these films because it's not your fault if you watch this movie and you're like oh james is an idiot well james i i have feelings but that's the history that's presented to you and unless you are able to know which resources to seek out that's what you're going to know and that's what you've been taught and that's not your fault that's disney's fault and so hopefully this is a chance to really think about what is it that we do know what do we think we know and to seek out more not necessarily academic but more accurate historical sources to really think about what this history does mean for today because there are far-reaching consequences of these events and of the lives of these individuals and so and that's one of the reasons why I do this because this history is alive today and the fact that we keep coming back to these stories and that we're telling these stories over and over again is incredibly important and I think before I get even more philosophical, I'm just going to go ahead and stop there. <laughs> so thank you so much for uh, joining me today to talk about the early modernisms of Disney with Pocahontas 2, Journey to a New World. Also, um, my partner has brought it to my attention that I should probably change the name of this podcast. So if you have any suggestions throw them at me. Uh, Courtney underscore Herber on Twitter uh, is my handle or throw a comment on my website because I don't know. I really like History Pop, <laughs> but uh, I'm open to a new name. So let's see what we can come up with. Uh, so thank you so much for joining me today. This has truly been a pleasure. Take care. This has been written and performed by Courtney Herber. Intro and outro music written and performed by Jonathan Colton and used under a Creative Commons license. This has been a Turtle and Rat.